Hi church, welcome back to part two of our series on 1 Corinthians. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Pastor Graham. I'm the teaching pastor here at Elam Chapel, and I'm so glad that you can join me today. Whether you're watching this live on Sunday morning or whether you've tuned in later, I'm so glad you're here. Let's start with a word of prayer. God, thanks for today. Thanks that we can be together. Thanks that we can gather around your word. We pray for mercy for our province as we continue to battle uh, COVID-19. God, we pray for mercy for those who are in the hospital. We pray for relief for those in the medical system, God. We pray that we would gather together and that we would get through this. Thank you for the mercies that you've already shown. We know that you are good, God. Pray that you would open your word to us, open our hearts that we might hear and receive. In your name we pray. Amen. So last week, we started by talking about that controversial New Year's practice of making resolutions. And we talked about it in the context of Paul's greeting in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. Today, we're going to finish this chapter by getting into the first real issue that's raised by Paul in this letter. The issue of divisions in the church. Now, we shouldn't be surprised that there were issues in the Corinthian church. Although founded by an apostle within a single generation of the lifetime of Jesus, Already the Christian church was facing controversies and questions. Corinth, as we mentioned last, me last week, was a major center of trade, straddling the Isthmus, separating the north of Greece from the south, and with two ports bridging, allowing easy trade from the Aegean Sea in the east to the Adriatic and, the, and Rome in the west. This is an important city, with many people from many different places, and all of them can be expected to bring differences of opinion, priorities, and values. Let's read about what was going on in the church. So I'm going to start reading in chapter 1, verse 10. I'm going to read through to verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some of Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. And still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul talks about division in the church. It's hard to know if Paul was specifically talking about four different factions, or maybe he was being more generous to the many factions, or perhaps he was exaggerating just a few factions. We can be confident that it wasn't a small issue, though, or else he wouldn't have taken the time to write about it. So even if it is an exaggeration to talk about four factions, we still shouldn't dismiss the concern. So what were these divisions? We live in a world dominated by celebrities, so it's pretty easy for us to assume that these divisions was about having like a favorite pastor. And it could have something to do with that. Corinth, being a Greek city, would have itinerant preachers come through, expounding their ideology and trying to build a following. I mean, really, isn't that what Paul did when he started the Corinthian church? 
and the idea of different favorites is one that appeals to us quite readily. At Elam, we have different speakers who cycle through regularly. At the start of this month, Precious shared with us, and next week, John is going to be preaching for us. I'm sure you have your favorites, and there's nothing wrong with that. Preachers all come with different styles and emphases and areas of focus, and some of those speak to us better than others. The next possibility that comes to mind is that of doctrinal differences. As people living in the West, we are familiar with the idea that different teachings or ideas leads to divisions. There are apparently over 200 Christian groups in North America. We usually talk about there being three big ones, the Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, and the Protestants. Well, if there's actually 200, then the vast majority of those are under that Protestant umbrella. Elam Chapel is a Protestant church, just in case you were wondering. So if we look at the four groups described by Paul, we can see that there might be a basis for thinking that these divisions were doctrinal. In verse 12 we read, what I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, another, I follow Cephas, still another, I follow Christ. So we can examine each of those four to try to get an idea of what doctrinal differences might be coming up. First, I follow Paul. This must have been frustrating for Paul to hear. I love his response in the next verse. Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? He's just like, guys, what are you doing? It's great. Okay, but the doctrinal difference that we might be seeing. Paul preached a simple gospel message. Next week we'll be talking more about that, about how Paul preached a simple gospel of repentance and faith, which is great and right. But if the rest of the message never gets emphasized, then you end up with people who never do anything, they just feel good. This would be really appealing to people who don't really want to change, who want to feel secure about their salvation, get some fire insurance, sit on their blessed assurance, and then never do anything about it. I think we can see where that would cause an issue, because Christianity isn't just about praying a prayer and being done. It's about following Jesus and giving him your life every day. So the second group, I follow Apollos. Now, Apollos was a Christian teacher who was circulating at the same time as Paul. We read about him a little bit in Acts 18, verses 24 to 28. Let's read that. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man and a thorough, with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, that's Greece, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the, from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. <coughs> Excuse me. Apollos was a Jew from Alexandria, which is important because Alexandria was a theological center of learning. In fact, early Christian thought was often divided into two schools, the Alexandrian and the Antiochene schools, as in Antioch. Alexandria often focused on symbolism, finding layers of meaning to the text, and pulling all sorts of deep understanding. 
None of which is bad, to be clear. I'm not being critical of that idea, but where it can be taken out of control is when people start to demand deeper sermons. These people aren't satisfied with something simple or straightforward. They always want to hear something creative, fresh, new, something that will tickle their brains. And there's nothing wrong with wanting your brain tickled. That's a weird turn of phrase. But you can see how this would create a sense of superiority and division in a church if that is your highest priority. Third, I follow Cephas. Now, I need to call your attention to the name form being used because it's probably a clue. If you're using a Bible translation that plays a little looser with the translation aspect, like an NLT, a New Living Translation, or a, a message, then your Bible won't say Cephas. It'll say Peter. And there's nothing wrong with reading a Bible like that. I'm personally very fond of the voice translation. With few exceptions, I think the most important thing about a Bible translation is that you're actually reading it. But to my point, most translations, and especially the more rigorous ones, all say Cephas, not Peter. And that's important because Peter is the Greek form of his name, and Cephas is the Aramaic form, which is almost certainly what Jesus and the disciples originally spoke, Aramaic. The use of the name Cephas suggests that this is a group for whom adherence to the Jewish law is important. Paul had many encounters with a group known as the Judaizers, people who thought Christianity should adhere more to the strong, much more strongly to the law of Moses. You can read about some of those encounters in Galatians and why this is a problem for the church. The fourth group, I follow Christ. Now, this sure sounds like the right answer, right? But herein lies a danger as well. This might be describing Christians who think that they need no community, no leadership, no teaching except to go and read the Bible by themselves. Now, it should go without saying that I'm fully in favor of you reading your Bible, but I also want to ask, have you ever read something in the Bible and not understood it? Have you ever read something in the Bible and misunderstood it, only to realize later? Say amen in the chat if you know what I'm talking about. Reading the Bible for yourself is important, but it's also hard, and we need to take advantage of the collective wisdom, experience, and learning of the Christian community and its leaders. And more than that, people in Christian community who think that they're the ones with the open hotline to Jesus tend to look down on others who they perceive as being less. These people know who to marry, what job to get, they even know who their friends should marry and what shoes they should wear today, all because they hear from Jesus. The danger here is one of arrogance, of being self-serving rather than prophetic, and ultimately the pride that causes churches to split. Now there's one more way in which Paul may have been talking about divisions in the church, and that is the issue of ethnic or racial divisions. Paul very clearly had a major appeal to Gentiles. Apollos was a Jew from Alexandria, so he would have been a Greek-speaking Jew. Cephas, or Peter, would represent Aramaic-speaking Jews. The issue of racial divisions in the church was a major question in the first century that comes up often in the New Testament. Paul's response can be summarized in a single verse. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's in Galatians 3.28. But, like, that's all a long time ago, right? We don't deal with stuff like divisions today, 
right? I have this I have this fun little habit that I do. I judge church names. Isn't that silly? But one of the things that I judge church names for is how hard that they're trying to say, we're the real church. Try it sometime. You'll be surprised when you're driving around in the city, especially with denomination names. And like, not all denomination names are bad. Like, some of them are fine. Some of them have the names of their leaders, like Lutherans or Mennonites or Wesleyans, although they're often called Methodists. Some denominations just have the names of the people groups or the locations, like the Anglican, Ukrainian, Eastern, Coptic. And then there are some, though, and they're just straight up competing about trying to be the most. For example, the Catholic Church. Do you know what the word Catholic means? Universal. We're the universal church. Whereas the Orthodox Church, Orthodox means true. We're the true church. Or how about apostolic churches? We're the church founded by apostles. Or the Pentecostal church. We're the church that started at Pentecost. The Presbyterian church is just the church made up of the elders or ministers. The Episcopal church is the church made up of the bishops. The Church of God, the Church of Christ, Bible Church, the United Church. Can you see it? It's us! We're the real church! We're Christ's true universal apostolic Pentecostal Church of the God of the Bible. Now, fortunately, we're in an age where churches and denominations have much more tolerance for each other. We're not so much at each other's throats, and a lot of these claims to being the one are relics from our past. But that being said, there can still be animosity and church splits. Elam Chapel suffered a split about 30 years ago, which culminated in 1991. Obviously, I was not here for that, so I cannot speak to the experience. But I have been part of churches that have gone through splits or splintering. They're painful, hurtful experiences, driving wedges between people and dividing the body of Christ. So what can we do to avoid these divisions in the church today? I've got three things we can do. First, we should discern the level of our differences. Paul in our passage today asks that the church have no divisions, that we are perfectly united in mind and thought. I have no idea what he means by this. I don't know how it's possible. We're going to have to have differences. We have different preferences about preaching styles, for worship styles, for decor. So I have to assume that that's not what Paul is talking about. I'm of the opinion that doctrines and teachings can be stratified, that there are some things that form the absolute core of what we believe, and some things are merely decorative. Take this church building. This building absolutely must have a foundation. That cannot be debated. And it needs to have walls, but where the walls are can be moved, though it can take a lot of work. And then we can decorate. Panels, paint, art, furniture, these things are easily changed and loosely held. <coughs> Excuse me. With doctrine, the teachings and beliefs of the church, I read once, and I'm afraid I have no idea where I heard this, but that there are some doctrines that are in merely penciled in, there are some doctrines that are written in ink, and there are some that are written in blood. Doctrines written in pencil can be erased quite easily. 
Doctrines written in ink are more work to change, but doctrines written in blood are foundational. For example, a doctrine written in blood would be that Jesus Christ, the only begotten of the Father, died and was resurrected to save me from my sin. Utterly foundational. I mean, we can be a little more precise and careful with how we say it, but in general, if someone agrees with that statement, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. A doctrine written in ink, on the other hand, would be something like the question of free will. Theologically, this is referred to Calvinism and Arminianism, or simply put, does God choose us or do we choose God? Although more accurately, the distinction is about whether people are damned because they don't choose God or because God doesn't choose them. The reason I say that this doctrine is in ink is because both sides affirm the supremacy and the necessity of Christ. But it is the kind of doctrine that is going to cause issues with trying to do ministry together. There are repercussions to those beliefs, and they stand to divide us practically, even if they don't divide us essentially. Many church divisions happen in, happen in this category of ink doctrines, and I think that if they're done amicably and in a spirit of brotherhood, that such division is okay. Then there are doctrines that are in pencil. My favorite example of this is the question, do pets go to heaven? I think pets go to heaven. I think that there is something very God-honoring about the relationship between a pet and a human, and it makes sense to me that God would allow such a relationship to continue to honor him in eternity. Now, I have no scripture to back that idea up. If you want to argue with me, I'll probably smile and lay down. I don't hold it lightly. It's just penciled in. But I would be horrified if someone decided that they were going to leave the church over my stance on the question of pets going to heaven. There are some doctrines that we hold very tightly and others that we hold very loosely. When you have a disagreement with someone, try to discern whether this is something in ink or in blood, or if it's something where you can agree to disagree and move forward in unity because it isn't important. There's a great quote that sums this up. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. That's from Rupertus Melendius, who was a German Lutheran in the 17th century. Which leads us to my second thing that we can do to avoid these divisions, which is to maintain a spirit of love and fellowship. As I mentioned earlier, Elam suffered a church split in 1991. Janet Bryce was in the office this week and she generously took some time to tell me about what happened. And not only that, she brought out a folder that contained about a dozen letters sent by the pastor and board during that time period. This was obviously a very painful time in the life of the church. But one thing stood out to me. I read a letter from the then chair of the board, Jack Newfeld. I'm sure many of you know Marion in our congregation. And his words, his words just spoke to me. Remember, this is a man leading a church that has gone through a terrible division and loss. And I want to read these words to you. To have constant close association with people whose interpretations of scripture does not tally with ours is hard for the flesh, but good for the spirit. We may well have right views, but God is giving us an opportunity to display a right attitude. We may believe a right, but he is testing us to see if we love a right. It is easy to have a mind full of sound scriptural teaching yet a heart devoid of true love. Oh, that God might enlarge our hearts with his love in the coming year. 
So that was Jack Newfeld, the chairman of the Elam Board of Elders, January 20th, 1993, in a letter to the congregation. This is so core. Jesus didn't say that the world would know that we are his disciples by how correct our doctrine was, or by how spectacular our music ministry, or compelling our preaching. Jesus' words in John 13, 35 are that they will know us because we love one another. In all things, charity. We must always remember that these are God's children, whom he loves, for whom he sent Christ to die, to whom he has given his Holy Spirit. If we can maintain such an attitude through the times when we are navigating division, then we'll do well in God's eyes. The third thing we can do is to keep our focus and attention on our common goal. Paul spends so much of the first chapter of 1 Corinthians talking about the division in the church, but he doesn't really provide his answer to it until chapter 3. So let's jump ahead and read that. Chapter 3, verses 5 to 9. What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe. As the Lord has assigned to each his task, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. Later in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul will use the analogy of the body being composed of many parts to describe the variety of spiritual giftings within the church and how despite their differences, they are all to submit those gifts to the purposes of God. This is Paul's real advice to the Corinthian church. When you have differences, remember you have much more in common. Remember that you have the same Lord. You received the same baptism, the same communion. You, though different, are members of the same body. Practically, this means that sometimes in church, things are not done the way we like or the way that we're used to, but we accept them because we're on board with the goal. We may not love the music, but we love the worship of God. We may not love the preacher's style, but we love the preaching of the word. We may not love the form of whatever ministry, but we believe in the necessity of ministry. So with all that said, I would like to invite you to join me in reading one of the ancient creeds of the church. The word creed comes from the first word of the statement in Latin, which is credo, meaning I believe. The statement originates around the year 200, and is really a core statement of what Christians believe. As we recite this together, may we gather around these words. May we remember why we are here, who we serve, whose we are. May our shared convictions remind us of how much more we have in common than what separates us and work against the division that the devil seeks to sow in Christ's body. The Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. 
He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Go in peace.